0: Well, uh, for a few weeks now, our focus of learning together uh, this month in particular has been on the biblical concept of becoming peacemakers, or shalom makers, to use the Hebrew word that's translated peace. This is about how we relate to others and bring shalom, the peace of God, into those relationships And, you know, of course, this series on Shalom dates back to September when we began by talking about the peace that we can experience in relationship with God, first and foremost. He has sent Jesus so that we can be reconciled to God the Father and have peace with God. That's of first priority when it comes to Shalom. You have to start by experiencing peace with God. Then uh, we trans, uh, you know, sort of transferred our attention in uh, October to the concept of internal peace. Shalom within. What does that look like? How is that experienced? What are the, um, what are the barriers or the distractions that, that would rob us of our peace? How can we experience greater internal shalom? And then this month, we transitioned to the focus on uh, experiencing shalom and bringing shalom into our relationships with other people, being peacemakers in the world around us. And uh, uh, I want to draw your attention to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, despite the fact that I, I realize as I was preparing this week um, that I've actually preached on this passage a couple of times already just in the last few years. In fact, the last time, I don't know if anybody remembers things like this, Uh, I I probably wouldn't have remembered, but I kind of looked it up because I had a suspicion. Uh, The last time was almost exactly a year ago that we looked at this passage together. And I have to tell you that this passage has been on my heart in an unusual way for the last couple of years uh, since I returned from our journey to Israel uh, just a few years ago when my wife and I went there to celebrate our 25th anniversary. This passage was the focal point Of our trip, and it was talked about and emphasized in great measure during our time in Israel. And since then, I I feel like the Lord has continued to bring it back to my attention again and again and again. So I hope you won't mind if I preach on it uh, again, even if you've um, heard me talk about this passage before. Uh, But what I hope to do is to bring some some different thoughts, some different perspectives. I'm not going to just deliver the same message I gave a year ago. I want to bring some additional thoughts to the passage that I hope are relevant and timely, and specifically that fit within the context of our, our, our theme of study, shalom. So I want you to think with me this morning about hostility. Hostility. It's probably, if there were a word that could be used as the opposite of shalom, this is a good candidate. Hostility. I don't know about you. I don't know if you might agree with me or not agree with me, but if you've been watching the signs of the times, perhaps you've noticed that there's been what I would call a significant increase over the last few years in the outright hostility of various people groups toward one another. And uh, this is true both here in the U.S. and around the world. And I would say even uh, beyond that, that it's particularly true of the way that people are treating and relating to those of us who are committed Christ followers. Hostility has always been a part of the human condition. It's always been one of those signs and symptoms of sin and selfishness. But recently, it seems that hostility has escalated. In the world. Instead of dialogue and mutual respect, hostility toward those of opposing views has become commonplace. So just think about that word for a moment. How have you seen it at work in the world around you? What evidence do you see of what I've just described? How have you experienced hostility from others? Or, if you really want to get honest, down and dirty here with me, allow yourself for a moment to confront the reality of whatever hostility toward others lurks in your own heart. Let me give you a few examples, and uh, I might, um, if I'm being honest, I might label this, these illustrations true confessions, okay? Let's just get honest for a minute here. Have you ever driven by a political yard sign for someone and felt tempted to jump your car over the curb and run it down? I have. I know I'd never do it. Of course, I haven't done it. Let's you know. Let's just be uh, sure to communicate that part of the story but the thought has crossed my mind. Crazy, isn't it? Have you ever wanted to salute someone in the wrong way who's sporting a bumper sticker that's antagonistic toward Christianity? Or maybe one of those little fish symbols with legs on it that says Darwin. (laughs) Right. Have, have you ever read a stream of comments in an online news article and been stunned by the antagonism and hostil- hostility that people are verbalizing only to discover that you're actually tempted to join them and make your own comments? Hostility is a mindset and a behavior that begins with unfriendliness, conflict, opposition, between individual people, or even between people groups of opposing values, but it can escalate from there into violence. And we've seen that in the world around us. It's not uncommon to read about it on the front page of the news. Hostility is the absence of shalom. It's the opposite of shalom. And it's present not because necessarily that someone has sinned against us and we need to forgive them. That's what we spoke about last week. We talked about the power of forgiveness as a, a way of demonstrating shalom to others and experiencing shalom ourselves. But this is a little different. What I'm talking about this morning, hostility is uh, the opposition of people toward one another or groups of people toward one another based on opposing values. We believe and value this, and other people or other groups may uh, believe and value this, something completely antithetical to what we believe and value. And as a result, those people or people groups come into conflict with one another. And they often feel hostility toward one another, particularly when when our own values or beliefs are threatened by the other group. Now, maybe it's just my own perspective, but honestly, I, I think that hostility in general and hostility toward Christians in particular has recently become more and more socially acceptable, even commendable. Not long ago, tolerance was the big buzzword in our culture, right? You remember that era? wasn't that long ago. Well, tolerance is passe now. Tolerance is old school. Now the buzzword is fight. Um, We've got to fight for what we believe in. And frankly, it seems that the concept of tolerance didn't work when it came to shaming Christians into going along with shifting cultural values, so suddenly, because we didn't conform to the idea of tolerance, it's become acceptable to just be hostile toward those who disagree. And as I've watched this unfold in the world around me, honestly, it's it's weighed on my heart. It's weighed heavily on my heart. I I see a divided world becoming more and more divided, a divided nation. This nation becoming more and more divided. I've been thinking about and pondering the words of Jesus, right? That a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, let me give you just a few indicators that demonstrate the truth of what I'm describing. Um, Two specific studies that have been done in recent years that back this up with evidence. The first one is from a few years ago, 2014, four years ago specifically, and it was done by the Pew Research Center. Uh, They came out with the results of a global research study using a tool that they've developed called the Social Hostilities Index. Who knew, right? This is a thing. And what they found using this index, uh, which measures overt acts of hostility toward people based on their religious convictions... What they found, in short, was that such hostilities had risen noticeably over a six-year period from 2007 to 2012. Over this time, for, for example, just to give you one relevant statistic, they found that the percentage of the global population living in areas where social hostilities involving religion were high or very high, that percentage of the global population had risen from only 45% in 2007 to 74% in 2012. So That's a 25% increase in the global population, the number of people around the globe that are living in areas where the measure of social hostility based on religious convictions is high or very high. That's the world that we live in. What about here in America? Well, there's a more recent study that was put out by the Family Research Council, a Christian organization that began tracking these things, and they've found that since 2014, when that other study was done, here in America there's been a 76% increase in attacks on religious liberty or acts of hostility toward Christians in particular. 76% increase. That's huge. So we're not imagining that there's a problem, a growing problem. What I think, what I've sensed and seen at work in the world around me is backed up by the evidence. Hostility is becoming more and more common, more and more acceptable. And it's more frequently targeted against those who are Christian. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? How are we supposed to live as followers of Christ in a climate like that, especially if it keeps getting worse? What are we to do? Well, let me just say flat out, the temptation is always to engage hostility with hostility. Right? I've felt it. I expect you've felt it. We want to fight back. When we feel that we are the victims of hostility, the walls go up, the dividing walls of hostility go up, and we want to defend our position. We want to defend our people or our identity and our values. And so here's where the words of Jesus in Ephesians 2 are particularly relevant at this time in our lives. I want to just give you a couple of insights from the way of Jesus, the methodology of Jesus and confronting hostility that I think are, are really helpful and really practical for us to think about. Here's the first one. I want you to recognize what Paul's describing in Ephesians 2. What he's describing is that as the ultimate peacemaker Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That's what he did. That's what Paul's describing. That's the heart of Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus came to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 in particular, get right to the heart of this. He himself is our peace. Peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. That's what Jesus came to do. And this verse, of course, is about something historic that took place in the early church. But at the same time, recognize that it's also about us. It's also for us. It's for what God wants to do here and now. The heart of God is always to break down dividing walls of hostility, to destroy dividing walls of hostility. So we can look back in history. We can look at what Jesus accomplished between Jews and Gentiles, and we can see in it a reflection of what he would want to accomplish in our own experience in our own day and age, in our own culture and country. What took place back then was essentially the uniting of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Now let me be clear, this doesn't mean, right, that every Jewish person came to faith in Christ and was reconciled to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean that all Gentiles got along with all Jews from that point on, but what it means is that Jesus provided a way where there was no way before so that Jews and Gentiles could be brought into peace with one another. That Jews and Gentiles could come together under the banner of a new religion was an event of epic proportions. And honestly, I think you could take any dividing wall of hostility in our present day and age and compare it to that one, and that one was probably bigger. It was a huge dividing wall. So as divided as our nation is right now, between races, between sexes, between political parties, look at any example of hostility and division at work in our own world and compare it with the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, That one was bigger. It was huge. In fact, it was so huge that for Jewish people, it was literally against the law for them to even associate with a Gentile or to enter their home, for example. And so, this is what we see at work then in Acts chapter 10 when Peter has this dream and feels compelled by the Spirit to go. Uh, to the, uh, the city of Caesarea where he encounters a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He's thinking about the dream, at the same time thinking about all the laws of Judaism, what he's forbidden to do, but feels compelled by the dream and by the Holy Spirit speaking through the dream, feels compelled to go to Cornelius' house, To enter his house, breaking the Jewish law, and proclaim to him the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what we know from the story of Acts is that Cornelius and his family became the first Gentile converts to the Christian faith. I will never forget standing in that city, Caesarea, perhaps within a mile of the place where this actually took place and pondering how huge that event was in human history. When God opened the doors for Gentiles to come into relationship with him and made a way for peace between Jews and Gentiles. You see, when Jesus came on the scene, he went right after the source of that dividing wall of hostility. And Paul says it right here. It was the law, right? What Jesus did when he went to the cross is he he did away with the relevance of the law with regard to that division between Jews and Gentiles. Jews saw themselves as keepers of the law, and they saw Gentiles as lawbreakers. So they literally created more and more laws about interacting with Gentiles, No, we can't talk to them. We can't touch them. We can't interact with them because we want to keep ourselves pure and clean. And this is why Paul so precisely points out that Jesus destroyed the hostility between them by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So Jesus made a way where there was no way previously. Jesus offered the possibility of peace between two groups of people who had never had peace between them before. And again, the real point to be made here is not just about the past and what Jesus did back then and how that's affected us now as we sit here in the church, the body of Christ. The point is that Jesus is about the work of destroying walls of hostility, If he could destroy that dividing wall, then he can break through and tear down any dividing wall. So my point, friends, is that we have to be really careful as Christians, as followers of Christ, not to get sucked into the rabbit hole of hostility. Responding to hostility with hostility will not bring people to faith in Christ. As followers of Jesus, we're called to live life and bring shalom to the world as He did. As He did. To follow His example and to learn from His way of doing things. In fact, we should notice that there's a really interesting insight here. Way back at the beginning of the passage, before He even gets to verse 11 and all that follows, where He talks about peace between Jews and Gentiles. Paul sets this up in verses 8 through 10 by talking about grace, the power of grace, and what it does in our lives. And so then when he gets to verse 11, notice that the first word of this whole section in Ephesians 2 is the word therefore. Therefore. I was always taught whenever you come across the word therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for, right? Well, the therefore is there for a reason, because Paul wants us to understand that it's the grace of God at work in our lives that enables us to do good works in Jesus' name. In fact, the way that he says it in verse 10 is that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And then he launches into this whole section about being peacemakers and experiencing peace. I think there's a connection I think part, part of the point that Paul's trying to make is that to be a peacemaker, to live in peace with others, and to bring peace into relationship with others is to do the works of Jesus. That is an essential good work that we've been created to do through faith in Christ Jesus. And there's, there's even an analogy here that I would point you to. I'd, I'd have you think about it like this. I love the word that Paul uses. I think it could actually be translated instead of handiwork, work of art. We are, Paul says, think of it this way we are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works. My daughter, uh, Kyria, as many of you know, is, is an artist, and she's studying art at Spring Arbor, um, going to graduate this spring. And as part of her graduation requirements as an art major, she has to do uh, a senior show. And so we've been talking with her about what the subject of her show is going to be and what kind of artwork she's going to produce. And uh, she's decided that she's going to focus specifically on portraits, which is her, uh, her first love when it comes to art. And she's going to uh, do a, a series of different portraits of people uh, that are dear to her and that she's been praying for. And uh, I'm, I'm super intrigued to see how that turns out. Uh, but as I've thought about that, it just reminds me of this passage, right? That your life and my life are like a work of art that's been created by God and put on display for all the world to see. Have you ever thought of your life that way? You're like a picture hanging on the wall. And when people walk by, It's meant to grab their attention. It's meant to cause them to pause and look and appreciate the beauty of who you are in Christ. Friends, if you are thinking and feeling and acting in hostility, nobody's going to want to stop and look for the right reasons. Nobody's going to be drawn to the beauty of that work of art. So, how did Jesus do it? What can we learn from his example here? Well, Paul gives us a clear answer in this passage. Let's look a little further into verses 15 and 16. And what I trust you'll see is that Jesus put hostility to death on the cross in order to bring people into peace with God and with each other. So, how did he do it? How did Jesus bring peace between Jews and Gentiles? Well, Paul actually explains to us it happened at the cross where Jesus put hostility to death. That's an amazing statement. Think about that. Listen to these words from Ephesians 2, 15 and 16 again. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, the body of Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death Their hostility. I love that. That, That's an amazing insight. Jesus put to death the hostility between Jews and Gentiles at the cross. He made peace possible where it was previously impossible, He brought them together into the body of Christ. In fact, Paul specifically says that he put to death their hostility. So think about that, what, what, that, what that means. Jesus brought peace through his own self sacrifice. Through the giving up of his life, he brought life and peace to others. He was the victim. Of hostility. And yet, in becoming the victim of hostility, he overcame hostility. He put to death hostility. He gave up his own life so that his life and peace could be made available to all human beings across the face of the earth. And this means then that the possibility of Peace, greater peace among different people groups that are presently hostile toward one another is is not just some, you know, pipe dream. It's a real possibility. It's fundamental to what Jesus accomplished on the cross and where his heart is for humanity. He was and, and still is the quintessential peacemaker. And he's now called us into his way of doing things so for example jesus said in the opening words of the sermon on the mount you know that you know them as the beatitudes right jesus said in matthew 5 verse 9 blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of god are you a peacemaker Likewise, I think of the verses that Owen uh, preached on a few weeks ago in my absence, the first Sunday of the month. James, the brother of Jesus, learned from Jesus' example, became the first leader of the church in Jerusalem, and uh, as the passage that, uh, from James that Owen preached on puts it, James 3, verses 17 and 18, "...the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere." Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's the invitation of God to each one of us. What does it look like? What does it take? What would it mean for you to be a peacemaker in the world? If Jesus was the first and ultimate peacemaker, those who follow in his footsteps have to carry on his life and legacy as peacemakers too. We have to be about the good works of destroying walls of hostility. And you can't destroy walls of hostility if you're preoccupied by building them up. So what do we do? How does it work? Well, look at Jesus' example. What did he do? He died. Now, that's not a real compelling invitation. I'm sure you're thinking, wait a minute, what are you you asking? I'm, I'm not saying necessarily, although it could come to this for some people, it does come to this for many people around the world, I'm not saying necessarily that you have to become a martyr, literally. But what I am saying is that if you want to be a peacemaker, it will require you to die to yourself. That's not optional. It's required. If you want to be a peacemaker, the only way is the way of Jesus, who was all about dying to himself. So if we want to live as peacemakers, we have to die to all the things within us that provoke hostility to others. We're going to get hostility from others, one way or the other. That's just part of the broken world we live in. But we have to break the power of hostility within our own hearts and minds if we want to be peacemakers to the world. So in the midst of rising hostilities toward us as Christians, we have a fundamental choice to make, right? We, we will, will we respond with hostility or will we res- respond with peace, with shalom? Will we keep our peace and extend it to others as Jesus did? Or will we become oppositional toward those who disagree with us? In the face of trying times and circumstances, let me me close this up this morning with just a, a word of encouragement and inspiration about how to be a peacemaker. What it comes to is this. This is what This is what Paul's describing for us as he looks to the example of Jesus. Based on the example of Jesus, our message of shalom to the world has to be consistent with our method of living in shalom. There's got to be alignment between the message and the method or the words that we speak and the way of life that we represent. Look with me at the next couple of verses here in Ephesians chapter 2, the end of this paragraph that we're focusing on, verses 17 and 18. Here's Paul's description of what Jesus came to do, essentially. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the message of Jesus. That's the method of Jesus. That's that's the essence of what Jesus was about. He came and preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far away. He was all about extending the invitation of shalom into others' lives and demonstrating what it looks like so they could see it and be drawn to it. So this is about alignment. It's it's about, first of all, aligning your identity with Christ, knowing who you are in Christ, and then aligning your words and your works and your way of life with that identity. And to do that, what I'm saying is we have to be willing to seek out and destroy any hostility toward others that lies within our own hearts. You can't be a peacemaker if you're thinking, feeling, and acting with hostility toward others who oppose you. Let me give you a powerful example of this, an illustration. Some of you, perhaps many, will remember the name of a young woman and what she represented. How many, raise your hand if you remember the name Norma McCorvey. A few people, not very many. Norma McCorvey was the infamous Roe in the Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade ruling of nineteen seventy-three. And let me just tell you about a transformation that took place in her life that's rather remarkable. Perhaps you recognize the name now that I've put it in context for you, and perhaps you're you're thinking, well, yeah, she was she's a representative of pro-choice world. In 1970, Norma McCorvey was a young pregnant woman in Texas without the means or the funds to access an abortion. So she became the plaintiff, Jane Roe, in Roe v. Wade, which was decided in 1973, obviously as one of the most famous Supreme Court decisions of the 20th century. Her identity was hidden for about 10 years, a decade or so, um, during the 1980s, until the public learned about the plaintiff whose lawsuit had struck down most abortion laws in the United States. Then in 1995, Norma McCorvey made news again when she declared that she had changed her position to a pro-life stance because of her newfound Christian beliefs. You might wonder, what How did that happen? How in the world could that happen? Well, as a young woman, she was a high school dropout. Here's the story. She'd run away from home and been sent to reform school. Her parents divorced when she was 13. She suffered abuse. She met and married a man named Elwood McCorvey at age 16 and left Texas for California. When she returned to Texas, pregnant and frightened, her mother took her baby to raise. Norma McCorvey's second child was raised by the father of the baby with no contact from her. And then initially, she said that her third pregnancy, the one in question at the time of Roe v.ersus Wade, was the result of a rape. But years later, she said that she'd invented the rape story in an, in an attempt to make a stronger case for abortion. The rape story was of little consequence to her lawyers because they wanted to establish a right to abortion for all women, not just to those who'd been raped. So after Norma McCorvey revealed that she was Jane Roe, she encountered, what do you think? Harassment and violence from many who identified as Christians. People in Texas yelled at her in grocery stores and shot at her house. She aligned herself with the pro-choice movement, even speaking at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. She worked at several clinics where abortions were provided. In 1994, she even wrote a book with a ghostwriter called I Am Roe, My Life, Roe vs. Wade, and the Freedom of Choice. Then, in 1995, she was working at a clinic in Dallas where Operation Rescue moved in next door. And she struck up a friendship over cigarettes with Operation Rescue leader Philip Flip Benham, who incorporates his Christian belief with his stance against abortion. Now, think about this. This is rather amazing. Norma McCorvey said that Flip Benham talked to her and was kind to her. She became friends with him, eventually began attending church with his family, and ultimately was baptized there. She surprised the world by going on national television to say that she now believed that abortion was wrong. She had been, in hindsight, um, in a lesbian relationship for many years, but she eventually denounced that as well after her conversion to Christianity. And within a few years of her first book, she wrote a second one, this one called One by Love. One by Love. Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe of Roe vs. Wade, speaks out for the unborn as she shares her new conviction for life. Now, why would I tell you a story like that? What am I trying to illustrate? What I want you to consider is that She could still be hostile to Christians if there were never a single Christian that were not hostile to her. What changed her course, what changed her life, what changed her convictions, what changed her values, what changed everything about who she is was the kindness of one person. One person who was willing to reach out in love and be friends with her, not adversaries. And, you know, it's odd, but imagine, right, that the, the friend who's responsible for her salvation, obviously Jesus is ultimately responsible for it, the Holy Spirit is responsible for it, but, but the friend who drew her in instead of rejecting her was the leader of of a pro-choice ministry. I'm sorry, pro-life, thank you. Yes, I said that wrong. Thank you very much. A pro-life ministry. Flip Benham was, to Norma McCorvey, a friend. Even though she stood against everything that he stood for. He was kind. That's what it amounted to. He was kind. He became her friend. He acted in kindness, and he did it specifically toward one of the key people who had instigated everything that he stood against. He recognized and respected her as a human being made in the image of God and capable of being reconciled to her father. And, And then he treated her accordingly, with respect and with friendship. Where others had driven her away, he drew her near. So what I'm saying is that that reconciliation and peacemaking are synonymous. This is an example of peacemaking, a supreme example. This is about restoring a relationship that was previously broken. Flip Benham did that with Norma McCorvey. And he had the privilege of leading her faith in Christ, because she responded to his kindness. What this means, I think, in really practical terms, is that we have to understand how to see people through the eyes of the Spirit, not through the flesh, in the flesh. I'm reminded of Paul's words in another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 and 19, Paul says, therefore, from uh, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. And he's really talking about his own experience here. Paul saw Jesus as an adversary because he was a religious Jew, a a zealous Jew. And he started out, of course, persecuting Christians, oversaw the, the stoning of Stephen, and was the church's worst enemy. He saw Jesus from the flesh until Jesus appeared to him and radically changed his life and gave him not just a new vision of Jesus, but a new vision of others, other people as well, particularly the Gentiles. So then he continues, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So Paul's indicating here that that reconciliation can only happen when Jesus helps us move beyond recognizing other people according to the flesh. That's what produces hostility not peace. When we see people according to the flesh, we see how they're opposed to who we are and we're inflamed by it. Jesus is calling us instead to recognize people by the Spirit, to see in them the image of God, to see in them the workmanship of God, to see in them the potential and the possibility that they too could be reconciled to the Father through the Son. Every human being is made in the image of God and therefore worthy of kindness, worthy of respect, even when they disagree with what we believe, even when they oppose what we value. And so what we need to do then as Christians is to determine to relate to others in the world around us with a, with a deep sense of honor and respect for who they are as people made in the image of God. I'll give you just to close with a personal example of this. Um, because we're gonna go this afternoon again, some of us, to summer place, townhome, uh, townhomes, and we have an opportunity to relate to people that are very different from us. Uh, One of the things that I found really compelling and personally challenging is uh, to cultivate a friendship with a Muslim or two, or maybe with a whole family of Muslims. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, you look at what's happening in the world around us, you look at, uh, you know, if you read the news accounts of Uh, the Muslim crowds rioting in the streets of Pakistan because a Christian woman was just released from jail and they want her beheaded, right? You could think, okay, why in the world would I want to have anything to do with Muslims? You can let the hostility rise up within you and become defensive. Or you can think, you know what? Jesus has called me to be a peacemaker, I'm going to learn how to do that by entering a relationship with someone who's different from me. Now, of course, in the end, why do we do that? We we do that because we want them to experience the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. But it begins with the willingness to engage, the willingness to be kind, the willingness to be a friend, the willingness to break through the walls of hostility, to destroy in your own heart whatever hostility may lie there. So think about your identity. Think about your allegiances. What is it that makes you who you are, and how have you experienced opposition from others? For some people, it's about allegiance to people of the same sex. For some people, it's about allegiance to people of the same nationality. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same skin color or ethnicity. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same generation. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same education level or alma mater. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same economic status. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same political affiliation. For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same denomination. I mean, we experience hostility even within the church. Isn't that crazy? For some, it's about allegiance to people of the same theological convictions and religious perspectives. What I'm saying is that all of these various allegiances can create in us a source of identity that comes before our fundamental identity in Christ. And if you're loyal to any of those things more than you're loyal to Jesus himself, you'll be likely to find hostility rising in your heart toward those of another loyalty. Jesus is committed to creating one new humanity in the body of Christ where the most important thing is what we all share in common. That we are created in the image of God and that we've come to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is committed to breaking in us the pride that we may have in any other allegiance that would further divisions and increase hostilities. Let's pray.